This week I have to confess to you, I have sort of been in a battle with the Lord uh, over the rain that I knew was forecast for Easter Sunday morning. Now, some of you don't, uh, don't think that's any big deal, and, and yet uh, as, a, as a preacher I, I struggle with that because I just think, God, now, now you know uh, Easter is this Sunday, Lord, now this Sunday. And he gently and firmly reminded me, well, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. Um, you know, I sort of set that thing up a long time ago, and, you know, I'm kind of aware of that. And Now, God, when it rains on Easter Sunday, you know, some folks aren't going to show up. And, Lord, I've been telling our people, now, well, you've got to park way over here and park over at the parsonage, park behind the building, on top of the building, wherever you can find to park, you know, so, so that other folks who may not be familiar with our parking lot, if they show up that day, they'll know there's some parking available for them. And, Lord, if nobody shows up, man, I'm going to look really stupid. Now, God, are you, you aware of all this? And, and God, you know, of course, gently and firmly, well, yeah, you know, I'm kind of aware of your parking and what you've told people and so on. And, and, and then, you know, honestly, I have faced all week long, and, and, um, and I think any, any pastor who's honest with you would admit the same thing, the temptation, a very strong temptation for Easter Sunday to be spectacular. Just to just absolutely try to blow it out of the water, make it the one and, and only greatest service in all the history of church services, and for me to come and try to impress you with all the fancy things I know about God and whatever, and, and it is a strong temptation. I have to confess to you, I've battled that this week. So it's been an area of growth for me this week, and um, one of the things that I, have, that I have learned is that Easter Sunday, though sometimes I am tempted to believe otherwise, is not about me. It's not about what I've told you where to park. It's not about my sermon that I've prepared all week long. And it's not about us as Elm Grove Baptist Church. And it's not about how we can make room for folks who might show up this morning and maybe looking for a church home or just looking for somewhere to go and worship the Lord on Easter Sunday. And it's not about how our children's ministry goes this morning and do the kids have a good time and we give them enough sugar to really make you angry later on or anything like that. It really is, and, and I say this with true conviction and true humility because God has sort of beaten me up this way. He typically wins those battles, by the way. Um, it, is, it is really, uh, as cliche as it may sound, it is really and only about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so uh, I may not be spectacular this morning. You may leave unimpressed with me. You may leave unimpressed with our church. I don't know. Uh, but I, I pray, my prayer is, is that you will leave both impressed and forever changed by the only one who matters this morning, Jesus Christ himself, who has risen, who is not still dead, who is living. And so as we move forward with that, I, I, I want you to know that this morning will be a simple message based upon one part of the crucifixion and resurrection story. It won't cover the entire story. Some of you will think, well, I'm not sure that's the message I would preach on Easter, and that's fine. Um, but my prayer is that we would all be overwhelmed and impressed uh, by Jesus Christ himself. So let's join our hearts in prayer and ask the Lord to do just that. God, we need to be impressed with you this morning. We need you uh, to show yourself as spectacular as you are. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts and you would do just that. That you would show yourself to be spectacular in the fullness of your truth and all that you are. May we see only only you. So God, help us this morning to not focus on anything but that. Lord, for those who are far from you, God, I pray that this morning would be a turning point, a turning from that life, a turning to a new one as they are invaded by the Holy Spirit. 
God, for those who may be walking with you this morning, God, I pray that we would see you fresh and new and, and as another step along the way, Lord, that we would continue our journey with you. So God, help us uh, to open our hearts and to see you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Luke is over in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. It's one of the four Gospels, the third one. And look with me in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we're going to begin in verse 32. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. This may be a portion of the crucifixion, resurrection story that is familiar to you. You may even know some of the, the words from various translations without even thinking about them. Maybe you've heard these words before, or at least you know this scenario. And if not, um, I think it will be a very eye-opening story for us this morning as we look at the story of the, the two criminals that were crucified with Jesus. Now, of course, in this uh, story, we pick it up where, where they are being led away to their crucifixion, Jesus, with these two criminals. And, and the story has gone on. Jesus has faced an unfair trial. He's been convicted, really, of, of just being who he is, being God. Uh, and, and the Pharisees and other religious leaders at the time thought that was blasphemy, that he could not possibly be God, and yet that's exactly who he was. And so he's being crucified for that, uh, dying in our place for our sins. And, and it's interesting that he's not there uh, simply by himself, physically anyway, uh, it says in verse 32, two others, criminals, don't miss that part, criminals, your, your version may say thieves, uh, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders kept scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Probably a story that for many in our room today is familiar. Whether you've been in church for very long or not at all, you probably have some inkling about this story. Maybe you have heard, maybe through Sunday school or something like that, the story of the two thieves crucified with Jesus and how one mocked him and the other believed in him. One, obviously, is joining the crowd full on. The other uh, believes in Jesus and through this receives eternal life. One is concerned about only saving himself from physical death. The other, obviously, is concerned with his eternal security. Both were in, in very exact, exactly the same earthly circumstances. These two criminals, uh, both were paying for their crimes. They are both uh, hanging there on a cross next to Jesus, but they have very different 
eternal outcomes. One remained really focused only on the earthly things, what his immediate situation was, while the other turned his focus to the kingdom of Jesus. One had anything but Jesus in his life. The other, by the end of this story that we've just read, had nothing but Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. One wound up with nothing, and the other wound up with everything. I want us to operate this morning just by this simple principle, that anything but Jesus is nothing. And nothing but Jesus is everything. Anything but Jesus is nothing, and nothing but Jesus is everything. I think from this story of the two thieves, the two criminals that are hanging with Jesus, we can easily draw this conclusion that one found that anything but Jesus wound up being nothing. And the other found that nothing but Jesus wound up being everything. If you focus first on the the first criminal of the two, the one who was the mocker, the one who was the scoffer at Jesus, making fun of him. If, If you are truly the Messiah, why don't you save yourself and us? If you focus on him for just a second, you realize that he is obviously the one who had anything but Jesus. And we don't know a whole lot about him, obviously. This is the only time that we get any sort of mention of him uh, in the, the, the gospel stories. We, uh, he's mentioned uh, in the other gospels, but, um, but nowhere else, obviously, do we have any information in the, the New Testament or anything about him. We can only guess what the lives were like for these two men before they faced their ultimate fate uh, to die on the cross. Whatever they did was bad enough, and it was perpetual enough. It kept going long enough to deserve a death like this. This was the last straw. This was the cruelest way to die. This was to be made a public spectacle. This was to show others, look what they did, and look what they're paying for it. Don't do what they did. They're making an example of these men. And so whatever they did, whatever their lives were as criminals, as thieves, was not petty theft. It was something major. They had done some really serious things for long enough to wind up here at this kind of death. Now, it's clear that this first criminal really wanted anything but Jesus. In fact, all he wanted to do was use Jesus to get down off the cross and continue whatever life that he had before he was punished to hang there. And although he obviously gave some thought to Jesus, but it was completely selfish, and it really missed the point of who Jesus was, obviously. He's a guy who wanted anything and everything but Jesus himself. And unfortunately, I have to say that he is the epitome of many in our world today. And I don't claim to accuse you in particular uh, of anyone uh, here uh, of these things. I didn't come loaded for anyone who I knew was going to show up today and I'm going to get you. didn't come like that. But I would guarantee you that many of us today probably can sum our lives up in some of the things that we can see for those who seek anything but Jesus. As I think about some of the application of what a life is like when it's lived for anything but Jesus... One of the first things that comes to my mind is the word idolatry. Idolatry is uh, simply putting something, obviously, in in place of of Jesus. It's it's anything instead of or more important than the Lord in your life. It's any alternative to Him that you serve. Uh, Whatever it is that is your idol, your God, is what controls you, what directs your life, whatever has the highest priority. Whatever says jump and you say how high, that's, that's your God, that's your idol in your life. Back in the Old Testament, obviously, this was a big problem. 
big enough, obviously, to where the first commandment that God gives, the first two in particular, talk about not having any idols and any gods before God alone. So it's a big deal. Now, you might think of some little statue that, that would be made in order to worship. And maybe that's not your idol today. Maybe you don't go home this afternoon and you have something sitting on your mantle or on your nightstand that before you go to bed, you bow down and pray to. And yet, for many in our world today, probably most, certainly not all, but the vast majority have the idols in their lives such as money, that that is their ultimate goal. Now, I don't want you to have to raise your hand this morning and admit to a whole lot of stuff in front of everybody, but, but allow the Lord to convict you this morning if these things apply. And certainly don't elbow the person next to you and say, I told you, he's talking to you this morning, you know. As soon as you do that, you know the Lord's just talking to you anyway. So, but, but money can certainly be our idol. I don't know about this criminal. I don't know what, what he stole for. I don't know why he stole and did what he did. But I got a feeling that idolatry was certainly part of his life as a man who was seeking anything but Jesus. Maybe it was money for him. Maybe for us it's a lifestyle that we have to keep up. We have to have certain things or we're just not happy. Maybe you are that high-maintenance person. And you've got to have the best of everything. And you will not buy it. You will not even look at it if it's not the best. I'm talking not just sort of better, but the best. Maybe your lifestyle is your God. Or maybe you are your idol. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And nobody's going to tell me what to do. Because who are they to impose anything on me whatsoever? And Maybe you are your guide and you're the one who calls the shots. Or maybe it's your job or the job that you'd like. If you're a college student this morning, I guarantee you that at some point you will be tempted to chase after and put your occupation, your vocational plans above what God really wants for you in your life. Now that doesn't mean that what you're doing right now is inherently evil or wrong, but there are those great temptations to pursue a certain career, to have a certain job and place it above anything else and say, if I could only get there and work there and be around those people, whatever it may be, or be in that field, then everything would be fine. You know what, at that point, when I settle into this job thing, when I get my career set, then maybe I'll, I'll sort of entertain what God would have me do. That's obviously not just relegated to college students. Many of us make our jobs our idols. We are so consumed, working all the time, trying to advance, move up the ladder, whatever it may be, or find our identity, our worth in what we do and can produce, that it can easily become our idol. Certainly our image can be our idol. Many of us today are dressed up and looking as nice as we can. There's nothing really wrong with that to try to look nice. But for some, that image that seeking after what you look like and how people respond to how you look and what attraction you can receive from members of the opposite sex or whatever, your beauty can become very much your idol. Other things, obviously, are idols for us. Maybe it's power or it's sex or just appearance or achievement. All those things can become things we seek after to the exclusion of all others. And in so doing, we commit the sin of idolatry. It's interesting that these things that we so chase after, they offer seemingly so much. They promise so much, but they deliver so little. Because once you've achieved that, you know what you want next? Whatever's right beyond it. Isn't that the truth? 
my goodness, I, I tell you what, maybe, maybe you all don't live where I live, you know what I mean? Maybe you're not human. But isn't it true that as soon as you get a hold of what you've lusted after, whatever that is, money, power, whatever it may be, position, all those things, that as soon as you get it, it's not enough. I heard a millionaire ask one time, you know, you've got so much money, you know, how much is enough? And the guy said, one dollar more. Isn't it true? It's never, never enough. They, they promise and offer so much, seemingly, but they deliver so little, and they destroy so completely. How many people have you seen or known about that were destroyed by the, the, the desires that they could not control, the desires for money, the desires for physical pleasure, the desire for beauty or image, and they're completely destroyed by it. Idolatry offers so much, at least it claims. And it delivers so little and it destroys so completely. This man hanging on the cross next to Jesus, a criminal, no doubt in my mind, had lived a life of idolatry, obviously putting many things ahead of and more important and instead of the Lord. Not only is idolatry, I think, part of this anything but Jesus idea, but, but before we start to slam those who would chase after other gods and not worship the true God, we need to turn the tables on ourselves and look at this next little term known as legalism. Now the Pharisees were really good at this. They were really good at this religion of rules, legalism. This is, this is Jesus plus anything. This is, this is Jesus plus, uh, yeah, you need to believe in Him and, and you better come to church every single week. We got gold stars. And if you don't get all the gold stars, perfect attendance, well, then you really don't have Jesus. Legalism is Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus plus doing a lot of good things. That if, if, you, if you want to, to have eternal life, then yes, you need to believe in Jesus. And at the same time, you also need to be doing a bunch of good things in order to prove to God that you really do believe. Now, be careful there. Because certainly the Scripture is evident that there is fruit from our conversion. That there will be outward signs of our inward change. But we don't do those outward signs in order to receive God's forgiveness and God's salvation. That comes by grace alone through faith alone. So it is not Jesus plus good things that we do. Those are great. But those aren't what we do to receive salvation. Or, or maybe it's, it's Jesus plus you be like me. And, and mine. You, you just, you be like us. You realize that legalists want you to be like them, but biblical Christians want you to be like Christ. If you'll just do what we do, and any church has the propensity to do this, any family, you just come here and you do exactly what we do, and I guarantee you God will be okay with you. How do you know that? Well, because He seems to be okay with all of us. Or at least we think He is, or we'd like Him to be. You know? Or maybe it's Jesus plus any traditions that have been created. Now, we have to do it this way, in this order. And I know some of you freaked out this morning. Some of you really did. When we did the handshaking before we sang any songs. Now, for those of you that are guests with us, you had no idea that that was out of order. You had no use. Well, that, that's all right. Somebody shook my hand this morning. Aren't they friendly people? Some of the folks did it, but they didn't like it. Boy, they didn't like it. We're supposed to do two songs. He's supposed to stand right down there, give announcements, tell us all to fill out the worship registration like he does every single week and say the same thing. Listen, I know. And then we're supposed to shake hands after that. After he dismisses the kids, and then we'll have the offering, and then we'll have a little special, and he'll come on up. Now listen, I know some of you, man, that turned your world upside down this morning, didn't it? Oh my goodness. Now I won't say that I did that just to turn your world upside down. All right? There's other purposes behind all that, and if you want to know, I'll explain them to you later. But listen, isn't it so subtle how those little things can creep in? 
And we think, well, if that's not the way we're going to do it, well, we, something's ungodly about that. Wow, isn't it subtle? I know you're laughing just because somebody else did that and they told you about it. Certainly none of us, you know. But, you know, legalism is anything that's a man-made regulation. People have to follow in order to be considered a follower of Jesus. I mean, you think about it even this week. I know some of you stressed out over what you're going to wear this morning. You st- Listen, you're still stressing about it. You went out and you tried to find that brand new outfit or you're digging something out of the closet or whatever and you just think, well, I don't know. It's Easter Sunday. Got to wear something new. Got to go get something. Well, you stressed out over it. Ladies, I know none of you did, but you're men, right? You're stressed out. Oh, my goodness. I gotta, it's Easter Sunday. Where in the world did all that start? I have no idea. You know, I always want you to know nothing I have on is new. You know, I just keep recycling the same stuff. I, you know, I'm comfortable in it. I've got one pair of jeans that I own, one pair of, of khaki slacks, and they fit good right now. I'm not changing anything. And, but isn't it true how even something like that can become a matter, well, I have to wear this, or I have to wear that. Imagine if you walked through the door this morning. Our ushers who are standing in the back helping you maybe find a seat or hand you a bulletin made sure you were in dress code this morning. Is that new? No? Okay, well, you sit over here. Now, it, you didn't wear a tie this morning, young man. We're putting you in the chairs up front. Wouldn't that be a punishment? How about that? My goodness. I noticed, you know, we set these things up. We didn't know how many folks would show up, and, and you know, and, and they're still empty. I understand. You don't want to get spit on. I, you know, I, I don't know how it goes. But, you know, think about the ridiculous stuff that we set up, even in little things like what you're going to wear on Easter Sunday. But I tell you, there are some folks, maybe some folks in this room, unfortunately, who have either had it imposed on them or would impose on someone else that if you don't look a certain way on Easter Sunday, you must not really care about the Lord because doggone it, you'd have gone out and you'd have bought that perfect outfit and you'd have worn it because God deserves our best. Does God deserve our best? Answer, yes. But when you find in the Scripture that the application to that is directly related to what you wear on Easter Sunday morning. You come and find me, you change my mind, and I'll preach a different sermon next week, and I'll give you credit. But until then, we need to major on the majors, minor on the minors, and follow the Lord's law, the Lord's rules, which say, love me totally, love other people unconditionally, be holy, live by the Holy Spirit, do all the things that you do for the glory of God. That's His law. And you sort it out between you and God. It's interesting how we do that. Perhaps this criminal hanging on the cross had lived a life, maybe at one time, of legalism and got tired of it. Couldn't keep up with everybody's rules. And he said, forget it. You know, we have a lot of folks in our country today who maybe once were involved in church and had that kind of experience where someone sort of put all the rules up and they say, look, I just want the Lord. And they say, okay, well, you get the Lord and you get all this stuff too. Free of charge. In fact, if you order right now, we'll throw in it, you know, two for one. You get it double from me and him, you know. It, it's sad, but it's true that so many people have had that kind of experience with legalism. Maybe this criminal was a person like that. I don't know. But many people in our world today are. Anything but Jesus will lead you to idolatry. It will lead you to legalism. It will also lead you to what's known as pluralism. Pluralism. Plurality. Now, this is one of the favorite things that we've got going on in our world today. You may be convinced of this as well. I don't know. Maybe this first thief was convinced that, that, uh, that any path to God is legitimate. 
And this is really the, the idea of plurality and relativism, that no matter where you are and sort of what path you're on, we're sort of all going to the same place anyway. And in our world today, this is one of the most popular things, because we, for some reason, don't like to hurt anybody's feelings with the truth. And I'm not all for just thumping people, but truth is truth, and error is error. And I remember playing baseball, and there were no excuses I could make. When the ball went between my legs, I missed it. Now, the coach could come to me, and he could tell me, now, it's okay. It's really not an error if you look at it from this perspective. You know, he told me, catch the ball. Don't let it go between your legs. You're messed up. There are times when we are messed up in our thinking, and pluralism is one of the ways that our world is severely messed up. And unfortunately, it has infiltrated its way into the church. And often we believe that, well, all religions sort of teach the same thing anyway, don't they? Which is the biggest lie you could ever believe. They don't teach anything close to the same thing. You've got to pick one or the other. <laughs> you can't have all things being right. Somebody has to be wrong. Maybe this thief who, who mocked Jesus, maybe he just thought, big deal, who are you? I'll get to God or whoever's out there any way I choose. Now, this view of pluralism is just as bad as this thief who continued to mock Christ. And it's just as bad as those who go after false gods and idolatry. And it's just as bad as legalism. Because Jesus is not portrayed anywhere in the Scripture as one of many paths to God. In fact, in John chapter 14, Jesus himself says it. That he is the only way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas wants to know, one of his disciples, how do we know where you're going? How can we get to where you're going? Jesus has just described for them, he's going to his Father in heaven. And Thomas says, how can we know how to get there? We don't even know the way. And Jesus looks at him, he says, I'm the way. And he says, I'm also the truth, and I am the life. And then he says, so there's no doubt whatsoever, John 14, 6, he says, no one comes to the Father, to God, except through me. Period. End of story. Christianity, Jesus himself, claimed to be absolutely the exclusive and only way to get to God. So, you may not like that. I don't know where you stand with the Lord today. But you cannot relegate Jesus to just a good teacher or one path of many to enlightenment. If Jesus is such a good teacher and yet claims to be the only way to God, and yet if that's not true, what does that make Jesus? A liar. So he's not a good teacher anymore. You've got to choose what is he. He's either a dead wrong liar who died for it, or he is God himself in human flesh who is exactly who he claimed to be. The only way to get to God. Pluralism will lead you astray. Our world hates exclusive claims, but there's no way around it. It's interesting that those who would claim that there is no way to know, that there is only one way, feel like they're right, which sort of refutes their whole argument in the first place. If you don't know and you can't know, well, how can you know if you're right? It just doesn't make sense. But it's attractive, obviously, to some people because they believe they can live however they want, still receive eternal life. But according to the Scripture, according to Jesus, it doesn't work that way. God will judge sin, and He is perfectly justified in doing so. And yet He loves us and has made a way, one way, thank God, there's only one way. We don't have to guess. There's only one way to get to Him, and that's through salvation and found only in Jesus Christ. Anything but Jesus will lead you to idolatry, it will lead you to legalism, it will lead you to pluralism, and then all of that adds up to false security. Anything but Jesus leads you to false security. I came across an article this week about the tsunami in Japan. And by now I'm sure you've, you've heard over and over that story and you know all about it. This is interesting. 
This article in the New York Times says this. So unshakable was this town in, in, in Tero, Japan. So unshakable was this town's faith in its seawall and its ability to save residents from any tsunami, tsunami rather, that some rushed toward it after a 9.0 magnitude earthquake struck off the coast of northeast Japan on the afternoon of March 11th. After all, the seawall was one of Japan's tallest and longest, called the nation's Great Wall of China. That's what they nicknamed it. Its inner wall was reinforced by an outer one, and it stretched one and a half miles across the bay. The surface was so wide that high school students jogged on it, townspeople strolled on it, and some people rode their bicycles on it. But within a few minutes on March 11th, the tsunami's waves tore through the outer wall before easily surging over the 34-foot-high inner one, sweeping away those who had climbed on its top and quickly taking away most of the town. One man said, for us, the seawall was a source of pride, an asset, something we believed in. We felt protected, I believe. That's why our feeling of loss is even greater now. Those who would put their faith in something other than Jesus Christ, in anything but Jesus, not only fall into idolatry and legalism and plurality, but have a very strong sense of false security. Only Jesus has the answers for life's deepest and most important questions. Only He can secure us completely for all eternity. Idols cannot and will not get you to heaven. Legalism doesn't point you to the ultimate truth, and plurality doesn't even make sense. They all add up to a false sense of security, and they lead to your ultimate demise if you follow that path. That was the fate of the first thief. Anything but Jesus, he found, is nothing. But the story doesn't end there. There's another criminal hanging next to Jesus. And he learned something different in the last few hours of his life. And in the moment that he believed, he went from having nothing to having everything. And his everything included some very basic things. Let me give you these before we close. It included salvation. In verse 43, Jesus says to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Eternal life was provided for this thief on the cross who was a lifelong sinner and criminal who in that moment became forgiven by the grace of Jesus on the cross. I want to tell you, I don't know where you stand with the Lord today for many of you, but it's never too late as long as there's breath in your lungs to receive His forgiveness and His grace. This man dying on the cross next to Jesus, in his dying moments, received salvation from the Lord. You're never too far gone. You say, well, if you only knew what I have done. doesn't matter if I know. God knows. And you know what he did? He threw a trump card down called Jesus Christ and said, His grace, His blood covers it all. Every bit of it. And this criminal hanging on the cross could have looked at Jesus and said, well, I'm not sure that you, you really know all about me. It didn't matter in that point. Because he was not too far gone for the grace of Christ to reach him and to cover his sins. Some would ask me, well, what do you think about deathbed confessions? Is that even possible? Can somebody in those last moments actually receive salvation? I mean, what, what about that life they led? I mean, I knew that person. What about them? I'm not the judge of anyone's soul. I can't say for sure whether you're saved or not. 
Spirit, it says in the New Testament, bears witness only with my spirit. I can't tell about you. I can see the fruit. You can see my fruit, but I, I only know about me. And so I can't say that someone on their deathbed cannot receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. We see the thief on the cross. He had nothing but Jesus in that moment, in his dying moments, but he had everything. Nothing but Jesus there, but he had everything. To me, that's just simply more proof that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. The thief could do nothing on the cross but believe. He couldn't get down and go do a bunch of things. I mean, he couldn't say, oh, time out, I need to go to church. Let me go to the synagogue here and fix all this stuff that I've been doing. All he had was Jesus Christ in that moment, and he had everything. He received salvation. Not only that, he received newness. Newness. In verses 40 and 41, you see his turn. Now, this was a thief, we have to understand, who in other Gospels, it's clear that he joined in the mocking of Jesus Christ. He was part of it for a time while he hung there. And yet in verse 40, it says, But the other answered, talking to the other criminal, Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. It's evident that at the moment that he's believing in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is coming into his life. He's made new right there on the cross. He was changed from a criminal to a saint. Was he perfect and sinless? No, but he's hanging next to the one who was. And that's who he put his faith in. At first he mocked Jesus like all the rest of the people hanging there or standing around. But soon... His mockery, his rebellion became love and affection for the Savior. His identity was changed forever in that moment. He's made new. And the same is true for us at the moment of belief in Jesus Christ, at the moment of our conversion, we receive a new identity. We're no longer a broken down, beaten down sinner. We're a child of God, made new forever. We receive a new nature. Certainly we'll battle against that old, that old nature that wants to cause us to sin, but we now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us who redefines who we are. We have a new family. You realize that one of the great analogies for the church in the New Testament is a family, the family of God. You may have no family whatsoever who loves you and cares about you. But as a church, we are committed to learning and becoming what it means to be a family of believers so that those without families can find a new family here in our church. You receive new direction from a new Lord at the moment that you become new. And I'm convinced that many of us here this morning need to recognize and then live in the newness that now defines us by Jesus Christ. He received salvation. He received newness. He also received hope. Verses 42 and 43, he says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And there's no pause here. Jesus said to him, I assure you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Here's hope for this dying man. A lifelong criminal, a lifelong sinner. There's hope. There's hope beyond death. Life wasn't going to be over. He was going to be with Jesus. He knew Jesus would live on. He says, when you come into your kingdom, do you see his belief in that this was not the end for Jesus? He would be resurrected. His hope and his victory were found, and ours as well, in this life and the next, found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that, that the reason that, that we live the way we live is because of the resurrection. He says if Jesus were not raised again, we're not just living good lives because it's the right thing to do. He says we're to be pitied for, uh, amongst all people because we're believing a lie. But he says because the resurrection is true, we have hope 
And that's why we live the way we do. In Philippians, he would go on to say that he wants to know, Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection to be applied in his own life. So because Jesus is alive and not dead, there can be healing in your life, in your relationships. There can be healing in your marriage. There can be restoration and reconciliation. You can see God overcome your depression. You can see God restore your family. You can see those habits that have kept you down for so long be overcome by the power of Jesus Christ applied in your life. Not just by trying harder, but through the power of the resurrection, hope in Jesus Christ, victory is available. And then finally, this criminal hanging next to Jesus who was changed forever found that Jesus truly was enough. He received salvation, he received newness, he received hope, and he ultimately received enough. He had nothing but Jesus, but he had everything. He was still on a cross. He's still going to die. He's still being used as an example. He's still without his possessions, and yet he had more than a new set of circumstances could ever offer him. He had enough. When Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, that thief, that criminal received all that he had searched for in life and all that he never knew he needed, all wrapped up in that promise. The same is true, obviously, for us. This world is out to destroy you. If you haven't figured that out by now, you've been living in a cave. The world is out to destroy you, so Jesus must be enough in your life. Money, stuff, beauty, achievements, all the things that we pursue aren't going to last. I'm not going to call anybody out, but there are some of us who are older than others in this room, and they can attest to that to say, you know what? I once was this, and now I'm this. You understand what I mean? You look back on your own life. I look back when I was in high school and college. I said, that was me. I had hair. (laughs) Boy, there for a time I looked good. What happened? Well, time has a way of revealing to you that things like that just don't last. Jesus has to be enough. Happiness seems to come and go, doesn't it? The joy of Jesus Christ has to be enough. Your circumstances leaving this service may not change. You're going to go back home to whatever it is you left. And so because of that, Jesus must be enough. Because when you have Jesus, you have everything. He is always enough. So this morning, because of the resurrection, anything but Jesus is nothing. And nothing but Jesus is everything. And so I leave you this morning with this question. And I challenge you, let God wrestle with you on this. Will you have everything or nothing in this life and the next? Will you have everything or nothing in this life and the next? Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 9 that it does you no good to gain everything you can gain here and yet forfeit or lose your soul. And he says, whoever wants to gain his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life, you just go ahead and live it up now. Will you have everything or nothing in this life and and the next? The first thief gained it all here. The second thief gained it all there. And I think in those dying moments, he gained it all here as well. You've got a choice to make this morning. The choice between having anything but Jesus and then winding up with nothing. 
and the choice of having nothing but Jesus. He is my all in all. He is all that I need and winding up with everything. It's a choice to make. This thief that hung next to Jesus who believed, he saw the justice of his own punishment. He recognized his own sin and said, I am being punished justly because of what I have done. The Bible says we have all, every one of us, myself, the choir, you guys even, have sinned. And we deserve death for that. He came to grips with the justice that was being applied to his own sin. And he said, you know what? I'm being punished justly. And then he looked at Jesus and he said, here's a man who's done nothing wrong. He recognized and saw the sinless character of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, recognizing his own sin and the sinlessness of Jesus, he came fully aware of the fact that, you know what? This man is taking my place. He's dying for me. And I will believe in him. He believed in the deity of Jesus Christ. When you enter your kingdom, there he is calling him who he really was, God in human flesh. And he placed his faith that day in Jesus alone for salvation. He could do nothing else but believe. And in that moment, he received everything, even though physically he had nothing. What will be your choice this morning? Will you choose to have anything but Jesus and wind up with nothing? Will you choose like this thief on the cross to receive the grace of God through the only path that He's made available, the death and resurrection of Jesus? Will you believe in Him for salvation and as a result be made absolutely new and forever changed? Won't you bow your head with me this morning? As we close our time together, Maybe you sense God revealing to you this morning your need for Him. And you say, you know, I've had anything but Jesus in my life. And this morning, I want nothing but Jesus. I don't want to wind up with nothing. I want to wind up with everything in this life that God has to offer. And, and for all eternity, I want everything. And that means I want nothing but Jesus. Maybe today you'd simply admit to God, Lord, I recognize my sinfulness. I know I've messed up. And I recognize your perfection. And I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And that only through your death and resurrection can I be forgiven. And I'm trusting nothing but you this morning. Maybe you'd tell him that you want to give him your life. Begin that journey with him. Lord Jesus, help us in this moment to do what it is you're calling us to do. May we abandon all so we have nothing but Jesus. Thank you and praise you, Lord, that when we do, we wind up with everything. Lord, I pray that not a person would leave here this morning without coming to grips with the truth that anything but Jesus is nothing. So God, change our hearts this morning. May we leave with salvation. May we leave with newness. May we leave with hope. May we leave knowing that you are enough. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.